In July 1963, two British thieves, Buster Edwards and Gordon Goody, arrived in Kensington Gardens to meet a tipster. He introduced himself as Barry, but these were professionals. Everyone knew that wasn't his real name. The man called Barry gave the thieves insider information about a postal train. It was set to transport a huge amount of cash, ripe for the picking. They talked about the route, which car to hit, employee protocols, the works. Best of all was the potential take. Barry said it could be millions of pounds. At one point, Barry excused himself to grab a refreshment. It was a warm day, and he left his coat behind. Gordon seized the opportunity and searched the tipster's pockets. He noticed the jacket was made by a tailor in the Ulster region of Ireland. Made sense. Barry did say he was Irish. Then, jackpot. Gordon found a glasses case with a name printed inside, and it didn't say Barry. Gordon was too slow returning the case. The man who called himself Barry came back and caught him red-handed. Gordon and Buster tried to smooth things over. They swore no one else would ever know Barry's real identity. Gordon may have been grasping his straws when he thought about the Ulster jacket. What if they referred to Barry as the Ulsterman? It was a promise from two thieves, not worth much. But the Ulsterman had already given up all his leverage. He had no choice but to take their word for it. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on the Great Train Robbery of 1963, when a large group of thieves hijacked a train and escaped with millions of pounds, they set a new record for the largest cash robbery in British history. Today, we'll look at how the bandits managed to execute the complex heist in 30 minutes with minimal violence. We'll also analyze the mistakes that led to their capture. Finally, we'll dive into the mystery that fascinates crime sleuths to this day, the identity of the inside man who made it all possible, the Ulsterman. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In the middle of the night, on August 8, 1963, a train was on a routine trip from Glasgow to London. It carried mail and postal workers, what the British called a traveling post office. The setup was efficient. While mail was en route to its destination, postal workers organized it for quick delivery. Even at 3 a.m., everyone was hard at work. Everyone knew they were carrying valuable items. That was standard for any trip. But none of them thought much about security. They'd never had to. When the train slowed to a stop mid-route, the workers braced themselves and kept sorting mail. Delays weren't their problem. 
That was for the engineers to solve. Up in the cab of the train engine, the driver, Jack Mills, scratched his head. He looked at the unexpected red signal at Sears Crossing. They were stopped in the middle of nowhere. Something wasn't right. David Whitby, the co-driver, climbed down from the cab and headed for the phone near the signal, perhaps an attempt to call dispatch. But the phone was dead. David lifted the receiver to find the wires dangling underneath. They'd been cut. As David walked back toward the cab, he spotted a man on the tracks. He was wearing overalls, the typical railway worker uniform. David approached him, assuming the man was there to help. But the apparent railway worker grabbed David and shoved him down the embankment next to the tracks. The heist was on. Back in the cab, Jack waited for his partner to return with news. He didn't know the robbers were manually uncoupling the engine and first two cars from the rest of the train. They were acting on the intel from their insider, the Elsterman. He said the cash was stored in the second car, and he had to be right. The success of the entire heist depended on it. Before Jack could figure out what was happening, a man burst into the cab. We'll never know for sure, but by some accounts, it was Buster Edwards, one of the thieves who'd met with the Ulsterman. Buster was a rotund fellow and usually friendly, but not that night. Jack saw him as a terrifying intruder wearing coveralls and a balaclava. Only his eyes were visible. Without thinking, Jack attacked. And while he may have been able to overpower a single intruder, that night there were more, likely six total. Something smacked Jack in the head and he saw stars. The robbers hustled Jack into a tiny compartment behind the cab and situated one of their own, a retired train engineer, in front of the controls. The man pulled a few levers and fiddled with some gauges. The seconds dragged on and the train still wasn't moving. The others grew impatient. One of the thieves, Gordon Goody, grew jittery. He'd been pretty smooth while talking down the fuming Ulsterman. That was Gordon's usual style, cool under pressure. But right now, with the weight of the entire operation resting on the shoulders of an untested retiree, he was sweating. Finally, Gordon couldn't take it anymore. He summoned Jack, still dazed from his head injury, and plopped him in front of the controls. Jack didn't need any further convincing. One hit to the head was enough. He released the brakes and got the train going again. But there was another problem. Although the robbers had uncoupled the base of the carriages, there were still heating pipes running between the cars. These pipes were not meant to hold the cars together. So as the engine and first two cars pulled away from the rest of the train, they wrenched apart. This alarmed the postal workers inside the second car. They pulled a cord to signal the driver. When the train stopped after traveling only about half a mile, they had to be relieved. But then the real terror hit. The robbers smashed the windows on the second car. Several masked men, including Gordon, climbed in through the broken windows. The thieves ordered the postal workers to the back of the car. 
Anyone who didn't obey got smacked with a club. Soon, all the employees were crammed in the rear, leaving piles of mailbags exposed. According to Gordon, the moment the chaos seemed to quiet, he opened one of the bags. Inside, a glorious pile of cash. It's likely the stash didn't just excite Gordon, it reassured him. Because prior to the heist, the thieves hadn't been especially confident about the Ulsterman's reliability. Buster and Gordon vouched for the tipster, but they must have harbored doubts of their own. However, here was the proof. Everything was exactly where the Ulsterman had said it would be. Gordon didn't know why the Ulsterman had decided to turn on the Postal Service, but he was sure glad he did. Now, Gordon had to bring this job across the finish line. With the workers subdued, the robbers unloaded the loot. The train was stopped on Bredego Bridge, a railway overpass with a road running underneath. The gang spread out in a line from the back of the train car, down the embankment, to their three getaway cars parked below the bridge. They passed the mailbags out of the train, man to man, all the way to the vehicles. The bags were heavy. In total, the thieves moved two and a half tons off the train. Finally, one of the thieves signaled the group. Everyone knew what that meant. 30 minutes had passed since the train stopped. Everyone headed for the getaway cars. They knew if they lingered any longer, they risked capture. On his way out, one of the robbers warned Jack, don't say anything. There are some right bastards in this lot who will kill you. As the vehicles arrived at their safe house, a rush washed over them. They'd done it. Each thief had a different vision for the bright future this cash would bring, but they could all agree. After this, life would never be the same. For many, this felt like an opportunity to leave the criminal life behind. But a sudden crackle of static damped that euphoria. A radio in the safe house was tuned to the police frequency, and a voice came through. It said, quote, You're not going to believe this. They've stolen a train. The thieves were now officially fugitives on the run. Coming up, Scotland Yard comes in hot on the robbers' tails. Now, back to the story. Around 3 a.m. on August 8, 1963, a group of thieves raided a traveling post office, making off with the first two cars. It took about half an hour until the postal workers left behind at Sears Crossing realized something was very wrong. The train engine was gone. They were stranded. A railway employee hurried on foot to the nearest town to get help. The law enforcement response was complex. This crime involved several British institutions, the Postal Service, the banking system, and the railroad. So the Post Office Investigation Branch, British Transport Police, local Buckinghamshire Police, and Scotland Yard all responded. Some reported to Sears Crossing, where most of the train was still marooned. Others went to Bredego Bridge, where the robbers had abandoned the hijacked engine and two cars. At Sears Crossing, a railway technician arrived first. After confirming the car's occupants were safe, he examined the signal that had stopped the train. The red light was still on, but the back of the signal box was open. 
He realized the red bulb had been rewired to override any remote railway control. The green signal, the correct one, was also still on. But the thieves had covered the green bulb with a glove, a less sophisticated method, but still effective. At Bredego Bridge, police took statements. The witnesses said the robbers all wore identical balaclavas, so they couldn't give a physical description. But investigators' ears perked up when they heard the thieves had instructed the victims not to move for at least 30 minutes after they left. Officers theorized the robbers must have had somewhere to lay low, about a 30-minute drive from the tracks, so they set up roadblocks in the region. At the same time, the post office investigative branch scrambled to collect any evidence in the car carrying the cash. They needed to figure out exactly how much money the thieves had seized and then notify the banks of their losses. Investigators didn't know who the Ulsterman was or even that he was called the Ulsterman. But someone among the thieves had to be knowledgeable about how these mobile postal offices worked. After all, the heist occurred after a holiday. That meant banks had mailed an extra day's worth of deposits to central banks in London. If the thieves had targeted the train almost any other day, they wouldn't have made off with nearly as big of a haul. That couldn't be a coincidence. In fact, the robbers had initially planned the job for one day earlier. The Ulsterman called Gordon at the last minute and suggested they wait one more day for the heist. A 24-hour delay would be worth so much more money. His advice paid off, literally. The post office investigation branch tallied up the losses. The robbers had removed 120 bags of cash from the train, which contained a total of 2.6 million pounds. On August 9, 1963, the day after the robbery, Postmaster General Reginald Bevins told the Times the robbery, quote, may have been an inside job. He announced plans for a thorough internal investigation, which may have been as much about PR as about law enforcement. See, a major reason the heist was so successful was that Bevins' policies left these traveling post offices vulnerable. By focusing on a traitorous postal employee, Reginald likely hoped to deflect blame away from himself. Sure enough, the media and the public seized on the idea. It added another twist to the already sensational crime. And when the BBC interviewed Bevins again the next day, he repeated his claim. It's possible someone inside the Postal Service had worked with the robbers. Meanwhile, wherever the Ulsterman was, he might have been shaking in his boots. He already worried Gordon Goody or Buster Edwards might reveal his identity if they got caught. Now he also had to fret about an inquiry discovering his role in the robbery. But the postal investigators hadn't identified him yet, and law enforcement focused on another lead instead, the robber's hideout. On Monday, August 12th, Four days after the heist, a dairy farmer reached out to local police with a tip. He'd noticed unusual traffic at a formerly empty farmhouse. When he went onto the property to investigate, he spotted a large, unfamiliar truck parked in one of the barns. 
Later that day, another informant notified police that the same property had been on the market for a long time with no interest. That is, until a few weeks earlier when the place sold out of the blue. The next morning, police investigated the farmhouse known as Leatherslade Farm. The garden was overgrown, and from outside, it still looked abandoned. But then the officers noticed all the windows were covered. Inside, the cops found cans of beans, pork, soup, fruits and veggies, toilet paper, and beer. Enough for many people to live on for days. They also found clothes and bedding and a Monopoly game for entertainment. It seemed that thieves had planned to spend several days at Leatherslade Farm, and the investigators had just missed them. Then they discovered a trap door hidden beneath a bag of potatoes. It led down to the cellar, a cellar packed with empty mailbags. A thorough search of the entire property ensued. The National British Police Force, or Scotland Yard, dispatched what they called their Flying Squad, a group of investigators who specialized in robbery and the criminal network that surrounds it. They learned the thieves had wiped most of their fingerprints at Leatherslade Farm. But the thorough forensics team lifted usable prints from a ketchup bottle and the Monopoly board. With physical evidence and the flying squad in charge, Scotland Yard utilized its vast criminal index to create a profile for the robbers and a list of likely suspects. They dispatched hordes of officers to canvas the countryside and to interview informants and known criminal associates. They wanted the train robbers to know there was nowhere to hide. And the robbers were feeling the pressure. Just as investigators suspected, the thieves had planned to hole up at Leatherslade Farm after the heist. But when they heard about the manhunt on the news, they got spooked. They fled the farmhouse less than 24 hours after the robbery. While the rest of the team scattered, Gordon and Buster had one more loose end to tie up. They had to make sure the Ulsterman got his cut. They arranged to meet somewhere private, where they could transfer the cash between vehicles as discreetly and quickly as possible. The Ulsterman pulled up to the meeting place in a van. He accepted the money without ceremony and stowed it in a hidden compartment in the back. And then he was gone. It was the last time the Ulsterman was ever seen by any member of the gang. With the last piece of the job done, Gordon and Buster likely felt relief. Nevertheless, they could feel the cops breathing down their necks. It was only a matter of time before one of their crew got caught. On August 14th, just one day after Scotland Yard searched Leatherslade Farm, one robber rented storage for his loot. He paid three months in advance, above the asking price, and with a wad of cash. The lucky landlord? A police officer's widow. She reported her suspicions, and police brought their first thief into custody. Gordon hung on to his freedom a bit longer, but the media found a link between another job he pulled and the train robbery. He decided his current hideout was no longer safe and arranged to meet his girlfriend at a hotel. The woman behind the desk studied Gordon's face, but Gordon didn't even notice. 
He was ready to spend some quality time with his lady. Before they had a chance to enjoy each other's company, the cops busted down their door. It was October 3rd, 1963, almost two months after the robbery, and Gordon was under arrest. By the end of 1963, authorities had apprehended 12 thieves. They thought at least three more, including Buster, were still on the lam. But the truth is, law enforcement could only guess how many men held up the train that night, let alone how many had a hand in the planning. Prosecutors were tired of waiting. They felt they had enough evidence to try the men in custody. So in January 1964, they put them all on trial together. The judge threw the book at them. Gordon expected to receive about 20 years. He got 30 instead. Over the next five years, authorities prosecuted and incarcerated three more train robbers. But Buster continued to evade arrest. He fled to Mexico with his wife and daughter that were not sure exactly when. In the meanwhile, he kept close tabs on his buddies in prison, and he was encouraged when some of them successfully appealed for shorter sentences. By the summer of 1966, Buster's wife was sick of living life as a fugitive. Since the justices seemed like they were treating the robbery with leniency now, he turned himself in. With Buster behind bars, Scotland Yard thought they'd closed the case. But the Postal Service still hadn't identified any traitors among their staff. Which meant at least one other robber remained at large, the Ulsterman. Coming up, the mysterious Irish postal worker is finally unmasked. Now back to the story. By 1970, prosecutors had argued their last case against the thieves involved in the great train robbery. No one else was awaiting trial. But this didn't mean the case was closed. Officials still didn't know the identity of the inside man who instigated the whole caper. The only people who could identify the Ulsterman definitively, Buster Edwards and Gordon Goody, kept their mouths shut. So it was up to postal investigators to track the man down. One of the earliest leads came through in 1965. A Royal Navy nurse shared a tip with police. She suspected an Irish postal worker with the surname O'Reilly could have been involved with a train robbery. The post office investigative branch learned a postal worker named James Patrick O'Reilly had been on the train, but not in the hijacked first two cars. Maybe he was there to keep an eye on the back of the train while the other thieves worked the front. More importantly, at the time of the robbery, James' girlfriend worked for Lloyd's Bank. Together, James and his girlfriend had all the information the thieves would need to pull off the heist. The only question was whether the couple conspired with them. Police kept James under surveillance for months, but they never found evidence of any involvement. James' lifestyle didn't indicate that he'd come into a lot of money. But we still don't know everything investigators discovered. James's file at the British Postal Archive is sealed. It will become public on January 1st, 2030. The Postal Service also looked into Frank Stockwell, another worker on the back end of the train. 
Frank left the Postal Service about three years after the robbery and opened his own grocery store. Investigators heard rumors that Frank, quote, won a lot of money, end quote, and planned to move to Australia. The rumored influx of cash piqued their interest, but they never found any compromising evidence. In fact, about a year after leaving the Postal Service, Frank's financial situation seemed to be much worse. So investigators didn't have a smoking gun, and after years of searching, the post office investigative branch never found any proof of a leak within their organization. The Ulsterman's identity was still in Buster and Gordon's hands. As far as we can tell, Buster never commented publicly on the identity of the Ulsterman. He died in 1994 without spilling the beans. Gordon held out even longer. He walked out of prison in 1975 after only serving ten and a half years. He stayed in Britain until his mother's death and then moved to southern Spain where he opened a bar. For the most part, he stayed out of the media and enjoyed a quiet life with his wife. But in his golden years, Gordon felt an itch. He wanted to tell his story. In 2014, a documentary called A Tale of Two Thieves premiered. In it, Gordon revealed the name he'd read inside the glasses case nearly 50 years earlier. Unfortunately, it was a common name, Patrick McKenna. And Gordon could only provide a few other identifying details, the Ulsterman's rough age, his nationality, and his occupation. The documentarians worked with private investigators to dig through records. Through a process of elimination, they landed on a postal worker and family man who fit the bill. Gordon claimed the Ulsterman drove away with a few bags of money, but you wouldn't know it from Patrick McKenna's lifestyle. He lived in public housing and continued working at the post office for the rest of his career. But maybe Patrick didn't hang on to the money. The documentary producers speculated he could have donated his cash to the Catholic Church. Patrick was a devout parishioner until his death in 1992. Besides, money may not have been the only motive for Patrick's involvement in the robbery. Before the heist, postal workers complained about the traveling post office's lack of security. They knew they were handling and transporting a lot of valuable goods, and they felt vulnerable to an attack. But there never seemed to be room in the budget for better security. Perhaps Patrick felt a robbery was the only way his superiors would finally agree to properly protect the workers and cargo. If that was his plan, it worked. The day after the robbery, post office leadership prioritized the use of more modern and secure train cars and upgraded older cars. They also added radios throughout traveling post offices. Postal workers had previously requested better communication, but officials claimed it would be too costly. Losing 2.6 million pounds put that expense into perspective. As for Patrick's family, they didn't agree with the documentary's findings. They couldn't imagine he'd ever be on the wrong side of the law. Plus, even though he was a postal worker, he didn't know anything about traveling post offices. 
Patrick's grandson, Mark McKenna, felt sick seeing his grandfather's legacy sullied when he wasn't alive to stand up for himself. And in fairness, the documentary producers acknowledged the theory could be a stretch. Patrick just didn't seem like the criminal type. Despite Gordon's accusation, based on available evidence, it seems Patrick was never investigated by police or connected to the train robbery legally in any way. And Gordon didn't have the last word on the Ulsterman. In 2019, Graham Satchwell, a now-retired detective who worked the case, published a book with a different perspective. He had the cooperation of Tommy Wisby, who was one of the train robbers. Graham agreed with Patrick McKenna's family. He couldn't see the homebody postman as a clandestine criminal. He and Tommy thought the Ulsterman, as Gordon described him, was actually a myth. They proposed that there never was a single postal insider delivering information, but several different sources. The robbers could have pooled lots of intel to plan the heist. As for the name Ulsterman, that could have risen from a simple miscommunication. Tommy claimed his friend Sammy Osterman, a fixture on the London criminal scene, had a hand in the robbery. Graham suggested that once the legend of the heist took off, the last name Osterman became Ulsterman. With every passing year, it's less likely we'll truly learn the Ulsterman's real identity especially now that Buster and Gordon, the only two robbers who allegedly met him, are dead. But even when Buster and Gordon were alive, there was little hope of really solving this mystery, because the answer depended on a criminal telling the truth. And if we can learn anything from all the Elsterman theories out there, it's that robbers are much more likely to tell a tall tale, especially when there's a payday attached. Perhaps the criminal who told the savviest lie is the Ulsterman himself. It's possible the Ulsterman put a false name in his glasses case. Just another insurance policy to ensure he walked away from the crime of the century scot-free. If that's the case, we can agree on one thing. The Ulsterman was a criminal mastermind. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos, Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. 
This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, edited by Wendelin Sobroso and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Sapphire Williams, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Richard Rossner and me, Molly Brandenburg. 